This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Zach Fuss, an investor at Irenic Capital, and today we're breaking down Boeing. Founded in Seattle in 1916, by William Boeing, the company has produced thousands of commercial and military aircraft over the past century. It is an important national and global asset, and one half of arguably the most famous duopoly in business, alongside Airbus. To break down Boeing, I'm joined by John Ostrauer, founder and editor-in-chief of The Air Current. You can split Boeing's business into three segments, commercial, defense, and services. For this discussion, we focused primarily on Boeing's commercial business, which accounted for nearly 40% of its revenues last year. We talk about the cost and complexity of building new airplanes, how the 737 MAX disaster changed the business, and why the future of commercial planes will look radically different. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Boeing. All right, John, thank you for joining us to break down the heralded Boeing Corp. I think maybe to set the stage, it would be helpful from my perspective, from the audience's perspective, to provide some context on the commercial side of the business, the defense side of the business, how big the industry is, what secular trends or tailwinds support business's growth, and where Boeing fits into the equation. Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to think about Boeing and Airbus too is really, they're both publicly traded companies, but it's really important to think of both of these aerospace giants, not necessarily as individual discrete companies, but as extensions of their national patrons. Yes, they're publicly traded. Yes, they operate with the same type of commercial considerations as other companies, but fundamentally they are extensions of both commercial dominance that the EU and the US want to wield around the world. These are instruments of soft power. And so they play a very, very, very specific role in fabric of the nations which they're associated. So with respect to Boeing, I mean, you look at history over 100 years where they evolved from the earliest fabric airplanes all the way to carbon fiber composite jetliners that can do an 8,000 mile hop in one complete flight. You can fly Perth to London right now nonstop in a Boeing 787. That's an amazing thing. I mean, just to watch that progression over the last 100 plus years. So looking at that, this is a company that from the commercial side of the business really had an important inflection point right around the start of the jet age. 
as we transitioned into the 707s and the DC-8s and the early jet age for hopping around the world on jet airplanes, what ended up happening was the entire ethos of the industry shifted gears and sort of the macro picture for airplane operations went from higher, faster, farther to faster, better, cheaper. And so you look at that evolution and really largely explains why we've been flying around between 30 and 40,000 feet and somewhere between eight and nine tenths of the speed of sound. Because the most durable single trend in all of aerospace, predominantly on the commercial side, is to deliver products that have a lower operating cost, whether it's lower fuel burn, lower maintenance. Airlines don't generally want more performance because there's a whole ecosystem designed around the structure that we have right now. And fitting within that and optimizing that has been predominantly the vehicle for how they become profitable. And so Boeing has served their customers to that end. And so that's the commercial side of the business. On the defense side of the business, thinking of it as a national asset, these are strategic capabilities of the United States of America. There aren't a lot of teams that can design a transport aircraft or a fighter jet or a bomber in this country. You're in the world, really. So protecting those capabilities and cultivating them is a strategic goal of the US. That's a super helpful summary. I guess if I were going to take a white piece of paper, what exactly is the business model for Boeing today? There are two big pieces that drive the model on the commercial side. One is growth and one is replacement. And so you've got an environment in, say, North America and Europe, which is more geared toward replacing the existing fleet with new, more fuel-efficient airplanes that might be larger or have new engines that provide a performance benefit. And then you have the emerging markets. You have China, you have India, you have Asia Pacific at large, you have the Middle East and Latin America that have not traditionally been the big drivers in the first chunk of the jet age. It was very much watching US and European economies grow to the scale that they have. Now we see China with a significant demand for airplanes. There's a whole geopolitical element around that today about who they're willing to take airplanes from and why and when. But if you look at you know where India is today as they aspire to be an economy and a global powerhouse alongside the US and China. So that's driving a lot of the trends. In the background of all of this, the environmental side, where there are a lot of people in this industry wondering whether or not either of those growth models are, are fundamentally sustainable. But getting back to the business model question, traditionally, the airplane business, as it's been practiced by, by Boeing, has been on the commercial side, has been to ride the demand waves up and down. And so as demand accelerates, Boeing will accelerate production to meet that demand. And they have always seen it as a benefit to be most closely aligned to those waves. The problem with that is that any up wave also creates a down wave. So managing that ends up creating large numbers of people being potentially laid off on the opposite side of the boom. And so what that has meant is that they have made their money on building and delivering airplanes. So the way you deliver an airplane, about two-thirds of the final price of the airplane is actually paid on delivery. The first third or half or so is working capital to buy engines, interiors, fuselages, wings, build all that on the way there to building the airplane. Also pre-delivery payments as well. And so that is the primary driver of revenue 
within Boeing's commercial business. On the opposite side of that is the services business, where the long tail of an airplane as it enters service will need maintenance and upgrades and new tools for its life that either make it more efficient or keep it operating. I've seen estimates that that's like 70% of the total cost, life cycle cost of an airplane. Boeing and Airbus also have tried to increase their share of the services business from the commercial side of the world because it ultimately is more stable than the ups and downs of the market where you've got airlines that are growing too fast and then coming down hard on the other side, which results in changing production rates and all that. It's really interesting. Pre-COVID, there was really a sense that things had stabilized in terms of growth. And I would actually probably put that to about the point of about 2017. Heading into 2018 and 19, there was an absolute oversupply in the market for the largest twin aisle airplanes. Boeing and Airbus, Boeing in particular, had been building at an incredible, incredible pace. 787s after their initial development of the airplane to deliver financial return on that airplane. And frankly, the demand for it was there for several years as airlines waited for that airplane. However, what we really saw financially in the years leading up to the pandemic, there was a glut of twin aisle airplanes. So this is an industry that, particularly at Boeing, I would say, and there's plenty of evidence to support this, that they have chased the ups and downs in a way that has left them at the mercy of overproduction and then the consequences of that on the opposite side. So we have a business that's effectively settled into a duopoly at least on the commercial side and on the aerospace and defense side, obviously a bit more competitive. Presumably they have their own kind of niches that they dominate there. It's a business that's been around for a hundred years. How is the industry structure settled in the way that it has? Form follows function in a lot of ways. And so the barriers to entry that come along with that require a particular form factor. And that's one of the things that we're in the process of seeing challenged now, which I think is makes the next five to 10 years probably the most exciting time in aerospace in the last 50. But coming back to the core of your question, Boeing is a global company. Airbus is a global company. These are super tankers of economic activity. I mean, just an incredible, incredible number of jobs that are closely tied to the social fabric of both the US and European economies. So there's an absolutely a political element that comes along with this in terms of the staying power and their influence within all of that. When an industry matures in the way that it has like commercial aircraft, where you see the rise of low-cost carriers, ultra-low-cost carriers, where you can get from Seattle to Dallas for 45 bucks. I mean, what that does is it even more biases you toward less disruption. And so again, maintaining that form factor and holding on to the existing designs, because once you have them and the infrastructure that comes with them, I mean, you're talking about when you're buying an airplane, you're talking about a 20 to 30 year relationship between the airline and the aircraft manufacturer. So it just doesn't change that easily. You know, you've got simulators and you've got pilots and you've got maintenance organizations and you've got the understanding that comes along with how you build these things and take care of them. And it just isn't a thing that changes very quickly. And what we've seen, I think, on multiple occasions in this industry, is that when it, you do try to change it really quickly, things break and they break really painfully. We saw that with the 787 development. I mean, when Boeing went from high bypass engines and long range performance with a really highly optimized aluminum airplane and fly-by-wire on the 777 to just less than a decade later with majority carbon fiber composite design, you know, more electric architecture, and a totally new production system to do all of this. Boeing ended up spending 
estimates have ranged from anywhere between 300 and like 900% of what they had originally planned, depending on how you measure it. I mean, they thought they were going to be able to get away with this for an investment of under $5 billion in $2,003. Again, I've seen estimates from 14 to 60, depending on how you measure. How much does it cost to produce an airplane between the cost associated with establishing a program? And then once that program is established, the associated R&D, the sunk costs, incremental aircraft expenses. I just want to give the audience an appreciation for the scale that we're working with here. Yeah, absolutely. So the new aircraft program, the estimates are around 15 to $20 billion. And so you're talking about a single aisle airplane, Boeing will tout or Airbus will tout 110 to $130 million in list price. For the sake of this discussion and the sake of understanding of the aerospace industry, no one ever pays list price, generally speaking. Typically, discounts of 40 to 60% are very, very common and typical, I would say, across what an airline actually pays for an airplane. When you think about the maturity of an airplane program like the A320 or the 737, you're talking about a, again, this is very rough, but a all-in cost to build of probably anywhere between 25 to 35 million an airplane, very rough numbers. And they'll end up selling for about 50 to 55. And so again, there are so many different factors that go into establishing the price, how you measure it, maintenance contracts, life cycle deals, all the different items that in terms of what goes to Boeing, what goes to suppliers that you purchase equipment that then gets shipped to Boeing. It's a very, very, very squishy number in terms of what that actually is. But generally, Boeing has sought profit margins anywhere between 5 and 15% for a commercial airplane. And sometimes as an airplane matures, that gets a lot better, which is why it's such a long-term business. And then how long would you expect an aircraft to be in service for? An airplane delivers today. Typically, the economic useful life of an airplane is measured in roughly 25 to 30 years. So an airplane that goes today will probably see service till 2050, which is an amazing thing when you really think about it. You think about going backwards from the jet age, beginning of the jet age, or beginning from the Wright brothers in 1903 to 1953. I mean, that was fabric covered airplanes at Kitty Hawk all the way to the very start of the jet age. And that's how long an airplane is going to be in service for that delivers today. And so thinking through the coordination problem, how many suppliers, vendors, third parties are you coordinating to get an aircraft manufactured and delivered to its customer? So what I always like to say is that if the flying public understood how complex it is to get an airplane off the ground from building it to delivering it to flying it, they would either never complain or never fly. (laughs) I'm not sure which one, because fundamentally the complexity of managing that process from making sure that all the parts arrive in the proper sequence, are installed in the proper sequence, are installed correctly, the QA, all of the engineering that goes along with that. I mean, you think of aerospace as an incredibly precise manufacturing process, and it is. I mean, we're talking about thousandths of an inch tolerances, or even ten thousandths of an inch in some cases. What you're fundamentally talking about is the single most challenging industrial task humans do. This is no knock on SpaceX and commercial space business. That is incredibly, incredibly challenging. They do not have the tempos and volumes that commercial aerospace does. And they also do not have an environment which is anywhere near as 
inhospitable to the product. So a rocket will wait for good weather, perfect, pristine weather, and an airplane will fly in terrible weather and be serviced by people whose salaries range anywhere from minimum wage all the way through three or $400,000 a year. That's just the normal process of having an airplane in service. So what it does, it requires just so much more robustness in how it's taken through its operation. And so to coordinate all of the suppliers, you're talking with thousands of suppliers, and those suppliers have suppliers, and those suppliers have suppliers, and those suppliers have suppliers. I mean, you're talking about a chain that in some cases is four, five, six levels deep, especially when you talk about raw materials like titanium and the specialized metals that are required for jet engines. I mean, it's really an amazing process to manage all of that. And by the way, every single step has to work. There's no fudging it. And so the amount of coordination that's required there is truly one of the arts of this business to then build it, have it meet your specifications across millions of parts. By the way, then you're doing it several hundred times a year, maybe as many five or six, 700 times a year. That is an incredibly, incredibly challenging thing. And it requires an unbelievable amount of institutional knowledge for how you do that and how you do that in a way that is repeatable, safe. And oh, by the way, did I mention profitable? To do all these things together is just unbelievably challenging when you're talking about a margin in the single digits. Before we get to some more recent history, it seems that Boeing's merger with McDonnell Douglas in the late 1990s is worth spending a bit more time on. Why was that important from your perspective in explaining how the business is situated today? The merger between Boeing and McDonnell Douglas in 1997 was a huge moment. And number one, it represented the exit of McDonnell Douglas from the commercial world and the absorption of its defense business into Boeing for the most part. And that was a function of both the end of the Cold War, but also the result of different corporate strategies that both companies had. And Boeing had been a much more stable company than McDonnell Douglas going to that point. Its commercial business had struggled for years. They had a terrible accident also in the late 1970s with the DC-10, which had, by many similarities, bore striking resemblances to what happened with the Max decades later and what it set the trajectory that it set the company upon. But fundamentally, what it did at the time was it changed a lot of the corporate culture about how Boeing thought about its role as an aircraft manufacturer. And going from McDonnell Douglas's leadership was primarily running the company at that point. And in doing so, brought a lot of very Jack Welch, GE-centric approaches to how the company was run in terms of thinking about the company as a financial instrument. And so in the early 2000s, there was a huge push to divest a lot of the key pieces of the company that the leadership viewed as non-core. So which is to say, Boeing wanted to be an aircraft integrator. They pull all the pieces together and they wanted to have that design capability. And that was going to be their expertise, an aircraft assembler. And so in the case of the 787, they divested their Wichita unit and their Tulsa unit to create Spirit Aerosystems, which is now their biggest supplier, a company that they've had enormous challenges with as a supplier, which is now facing significant financial troubles because of the sum total of the strategies that created it. And so that has guided a lot of how the company has behaved over the last 20 years. And so thinking about the role of the merger here, there were ultimately markers along the way that saw Boeing prioritizing different things over time at a corporate level. That just massively accelerated that. And so a lot of the criticisms that have been levied against the company 
a lot of folks who were internally of the belief that that was the major turning point. Again, after that, it was, again, the sum total of each misstep sort of compounding the issue, getting farther away from solving the core problem, which is how do you take this incredibly complex integrated product and have an enterprise that is equally complex, equally integrated, and responsive to the needs of your customers and ultimately the needs of everyone in your ecosystem. And so that has been Boeing's singular challenge and it's manifested in a lot of different ways over the years with respect to program performance, financial performance, and how that's ultimately unfolded until today. And so perhaps an appropriate segue, you know, for a long period of time, Boeing was this darling of the equity markets. I believe the equity value per share nearly tripled from 2016 to 2018. And that it made national news for the wrong reasons. And so I'd like you to kind of help us to better appreciate the turbulence that Boeing has faced here over the past, call it five years or so. It's been an interesting century for Boeing. I mean, you got to go back pretty much to the beginning of the 2000s for explaining how it got to where it got. So when they launched the 787 in 2003, 2004, they undertook that process over what ended up being two to three years longer than they expected because of the technology wasn't ready, the supply chain wasn't ready, and certification just took way longer. Because of that astronomical cost, it caused them to prioritize the speed to deliver a single aisle airplane, 77 is a twin aisle airplane, with greater fuel efficiency as quickly as airlines could get it. But the cost of developing a new single aisle airplane at a time when Airbus was coming out with the A320neo drove them to put new engines and create the 737 MAX. And so in during those years between 2011, when they launched the airplane and entering into service in 2017, those years were transition years for Boeing. While they were starting to deliver 787s, which by the way, were losing a lot of money per delivery at that point, but over time generating significant cash, Boeing does accounting. It is not on a unit basis, it's on a program basis, which we could probably spend an entire program on just that. But during the interim years, when they were building a bridge to the 737 MAX transition and also the 777X, which was an updated version of their long haul 777, which would have new carbon fiber wings and also new GE engines for significantly improved fuel efficiency and capacity. During that time, Boeing significantly ramped up production of its metal winged 777 and the 737 Next Gen, which ironically enough was the generation that preceded the MAX. And based on a lot of moves that they made in the early 2000s to really optimize those programs under a certain set of really legendary leaders inside Boeing, they became the cash cows. They generated tremendous, tremendous, tremendous cash for Boeing at a time when the 787 was getting on its feet. And so that's where Boeing was able to earn that reputation you spoke about in terms of the darling of the equity markets, which drove its stock price to record levels at one point, pushing $500 a share. And then in October of 2018, a 737 MAX leaving Jakarta crashed with 189 people aboard, all were killed. And it was the first accident with a MAX and kicked off an investigation into what potentially had happened. And five months later, there was another crash. and. Uh, Ethiopian 302 crashed, killing all aboard another 737 MAX, two brand new airplanes. And you think about the history and the safety of the industry. I mean, we talked about the incredible complexity of this business. One of the most amazing accomplishments of this business is how safe aviation and commercial aviation has become. We just don't even think about it anymore for the most part. But what we had in this case after literally one of the safest years in commercial aviation history, you had two airplanes crashing 
within months of each other. And that just doesn't happen. So pretty quickly after, it kicked off a series of groundings, started with the Chinese and went around the world regulator by regulator. And a couple of days later, the Canadians in the US were the last to ground the airplane. And the investigation really centered on a few different things. Number one, the flight control system of the airplane and a system called MCAS, called the Maneuver Characteristics Augmentation System. And that was designed to meet certification requirements for how the airplane handled when it was at a high angle of attack. That's to say the nose was really high up and certain conditions were met, like the flaps were up and the autopilot was off and was being hand flown and how the airplane would respond as it slowed and approached a stall. And so added the system that would automatically swivel the tailplane of the airplane to lower the nose. And in the case of both incidents, the system was erroneously activated because of bad angle of attack data that caused the system, which was at that point driven by a single sensor and a single data input to activate and activated repeatedly and ultimately caused both crews flying those airplanes to lose control. There has been innumerable pieces written over the last several years about exploring all the different causes. Certainly, there's been a lot of discussion about the pilot reaction to both systems. I think one of the things that the aerospace safety community has looked at with respect to both incidents is that neither of those accidents happen if MCAS doesn't exist. And so when you look at the sequence of events, that was what ultimately triggered the airplane being grounded for 20 months when it finally went back to service in the US in December of 2020. Given those circumstances, there's been leadership turnover. How has that permeated through the culture and the strategic direction of what the company is today and what it potentially becomes as we kind of look into the future? The MAX crisis did set off a leadership transition. Boeing was under siege during that entire process from this harrowing tragedy in October 2018 all the way through the end of 2019 for the leadership side of it. And then CEO Dennis Mullenberg was ultimately ousted at the end of 2019, and David Calhoun took over shortly thereafter. And Calhoun had been on the board for years. I think it's really important to note that as all of this is happening, and all of this chaos is swirling around, around Boeing and this horrible tragedy, which is just unthinkable on a scale that I don't even think Boeing could have fathomed. Fundamentally, the strategy of Boeing at a high level has not changed. Culturally, there are elements that they're emphasizing more. They've a chief safety officer. They've stood up new programs for safety promotion and an ombudsman for the organization and really additional checks and balances. But fundamentally, the corporate strategy of Boeing has not changed. Building airplanes for the world's airlines for growth and replacement. That continues to be the metric by which they're measured on Wall Street, which is cash generation. And so they're at a point where having gone from continuing to build airplanes at almost 42 per month for 737s to stopping the line completely and then restarting it and sort of running headlong into the factors that drove its performance to that point. So its relationship with suppliers, getting its supply chain back up and running while you're dealing with, by the way, all this is happening as a global pandemic is running roughshod over the global economy. And supply chain fragility was the concern du jour. And so all of the macro forces are colliding with the local forces, and it makes it really, really hard to get back on footing. And right now, Boeing absolutely demonstrably has gotten more stable than it was before in terms of the number of airplanes that they're producing, but they're still running into supply chain issues. Getting back up to a rate and a regular tempo is still really challenging. But I would say that largely speaking, they are building airplanes at a much more regular pace than they certainly had been over the last 18 months. 
Did this kind of disruption threaten the oligopoly or the duopoly that's in place? Did it create opportunity for someone to enter and challenge it, like Embraer or perhaps a Chinese upstart? I'm just trying to better understand what the competitive headwinds are that the business could face. It's a fantastic question because I think there are those who are wondering that as well, who are trying to be that new entrant. I have a company startup out of Long Beach called Jet Zero, for example. They're trying to do a blended wing body, which is it's like the entire airplane was a wing rather than the Tubin wing that we know with Boeing airplanes. Going back to the idea of Boeing as a strategic asset, how do you best protect that strategic asset? And folks like the Secretary of the Air Force have sort of commissioned, based on our reporting, commissioned analyses internally about what is the long-term effect of this amount of disruption on Boeing, on the Pentagon's ability to project, and also the State Department's ability to project soft power. The economic officers of the State Department are involved with helping with Boeing sales campaigns. Absolutely. And the same in the EU. This is not uncommon. So the health of these companies and the reputation that they wield are, again, direct extensions. So you think about, does that environment foster one that causes or helps a new entrant spur to action? Entering this market is one of the hardest things you can do. And so far, one of the major prerequisites for entering this business is to have sovereign backing. And the last company to try and compete directly head-to-head with Boeing and Airbus is Bombardier in Canada. And what happened was they started in 2008 with an airplane called the C-Series. And it was, by all measures, a really technically superior airplane to the 737 and the A320. And it could not get the market traction that was needed to allow them to reach a scale and a cost of doing business that allowed them to continue. And that airplane was absorbed into Airbus in 2018. So in so many words, they failed strategically to have this product deliver their future. So it's not an environment that is hospitable at all. And we've seen Mitsubishi, the Japanese industrial conglomerate, try to do the same thing with a regional jet. They too decided to pull back and they end up shelving the program and it will almost certainly never, actually will never come to fruition. And so this is a really challenging business. So As far as what we have today is a competitive landscape where Boeing and Airbus are trying to compete with one another, trying to get back on their feet. Airbus has supply chain challenges too, 100%. They are different because they don't have the overhang of what happened with Max and other regulatory challenges that Boeing is facing both in the US and globally. But I think what we're seeing now is the rise of China. There's a whole new element to this because it's geopolitical, it's industrial. One of the things I mentioned earlier that the way the max grounding happened was that China was the first to ground the airplane. And China was, by all safety assessments, was doing so out of an overwhelming abundance of caution based on what they saw technically. But what I think has evolved over time in terms of the airplane actually returning to service in China, it only came back fairly recently, many years after the US did. And I think it had become effectively a pawn in the geopolitical game that was born out of trade policies that started in the Trump administration were carried forth in the Biden administration. And so Boeing has absolutely been a casualty of that. There's reporting that suggests that maybe as early as this month, Boeing will start delivering Chinese 737 MAXs again from their inventory, but there are also signs that they may not. I mean, this comes as the Chinese government is saying, no, you can't have an iPhone if you're in the Chinese government. There are other kinds of restrictions that are taking place there. So you see these geopolitical cross currents that are just as important as the supply chain cross currents that make this a lot more challenging. So all this is happening as China wants its own industry and they have their state-owned 
entity called Comac. And Comac has the ARJ-21, which is a 90 to 100 seat regional jet, which is flying around China. And you have what's called the C919, which is the same size roughly as the 737 and the Airbus A320. And that airplane has now entered service. It was certified by the Chinese. It is not certified outside of China to operate. There are a handful of possible export customers, but for the most part, this is going to be an airplane that flies in domestic Chinese airspace and only domestic Chinese airspace. And so, so far there are two in operation. So you think about the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of 737s and A320s flying around the world, there are two Chinese C919s flying. So there's a long way to go. However, China obviously has the Chinese market and it's a captive market in that regard, in terms of how purchasing decisions are made and how these industrial ties are developed. Yes, China is going to be a growing part of the duopoly over the coming decades. By all accounts, it will happen, but it will probably happen slower than people think. But is it going to have an impact on Boeing and Airbus? Absolutely. Because when you collide the industrial and the geopolitical together, there's no way that it won't affect both companies. Some very basic math. There's something like 5,000 orders for the 737 MAX. I think you said they may be producing up to 30 or 40 a month, meaning we've had years and years of demand for this aircraft. What does that mean to the way that this business grows and executes from here? Is it just a function of how quickly they can build the aircraft? Yes. When you switch from higher, faster, farther performance, the faster, better, cheaper, how quickly you can get it to market is tremendously important. And so you have backlogs that, I mean, Airbus is six or 7,000 right now. I'm probably fudging those numbers, but they're big, really big numbers in Boeing between four and 5,000. And so that's what Boeing and Airbus are going to be doing for the next 10 years. Coming back full circle here, is that going to be sufficient from an environmental perspective? The changing winds of climate change and the politics that come along with that and the policies that come along with that are absolutely going to affect both. Over the next five years, Boeing is actually in the process of developing its first full-scale demonstrator airplane to significantly reduce the amount of fuel and by extension, carbon emissions that it creates. Just for context, the last time Boeing took a full-scale airplane and changed its shape to reflect where they thought the planet or the market was going was the 1950s and the 707. That's how long it's been. So this airplane, it's called the transonic truss braced wing. It looks like it's got a super skinny long wing and has a pair of trusses that hold up the wings. And what Boeing is doing is under a shared grant with NASA, they're slicing and dicing an old McDonnell Douglas MD-90 aircraft, and they're going to be installing these really advanced wings on this test aircraft. And in 2028, they will fly. And so it's Boeing's first real test of whether or not they're going to get away from what we traditionally know as the form factor for airplanes, which is that low wing potted engine type approach. All this is happening as GE, for example, is developing what's called the open rotor engine, which is effectively a 144, so 12 foot diameter fanned engine without that kind of familiar nacelle around it. It's almost like a propeller, but I'm like a jet engine. All of these things are converging and whether or not they actually come to market and whether or not they make the business case close and they convince airlines that this is a path forward will, I think, in large measure decide what the 2030s look like. The A320 presented service in 1987, 88, and the 737 entered service in 1967. So is the A320 newer? Yes, it is by a good two decades. The technology within it reflects that. But fundamentally, these designs are really old. They're really reliable for the most part. 
and they're familiar and there's an infrastructure built up around that. But ensuring one of the subtexts of the entire commercial aerospace industry is asking whether or not the type of emissions that the industry has produced, which is about two to 3% of the world's carbon emissions on its own, will be allowed to continue in a way that they have. And what effect does that have on price of air travel? If sustainable aviation fuel, which is a type of fuel that significantly reduces the amount of carbon emissions in the production, in the life cycle of the fuel by up to 80% potentially in some cases, gets fielded. And does it get fielded to a large enough proportion of the total fuel need? Is there supply to meet the demand? It's not going to be cheaper, at least where we sit today, it's four or five times more expensive than traditional jet fuel. What does that do to the price of a ticket? What does that do to the elasticity of demand? Will people stay home? Will they travel? Will airlines buy as many airplanes? So these are the types of questions that have to be answered over the next five to 10 years. So I think where the aerospace industry is in terms of its business model, this is existential. How it's going to progress and how it intersects with the importance socially in terms of the number of jobs that it provides, both for industry, but also tourism for moving people around the world, and also the role of governments in terms of whether they subsidize air travel to, again, keep these industries going and what that ultimately means for how much it costs and where we can go. I think one of the big questions is what does the world look like in 2033 for air travel? And by all accounts, it is not going to look like the way it does today. So I noticed that you didn't mention eVTOL, which I believe Boeing made a rather significant investment, at least $450 million, if not more, which for their CapEx budget, I appreciate is not a massive number, but it's also not meaningless. And I'm curious if that plays a role in the evolution of commercial aircraft in the near term or even the longer term. Boeing actually has a very transparent strategy related to eVTOLs. I think one of the things that Boeing has tried to do over the last several years, and it kind of intersects with their defense business as well, is the role of autonomy in flying to either reduce pilot workload or to remove, in the case of the eVTOL investments that they've made in a company called Whisk, which they now wholly own, to remove the pilot altogether. So you effectively have flying glass elevators in so many words. To do that, it requires a totally new type of technology using autonomous systems and the system of systems that's required to manage all of autonomous aircraft that are potentially carrying passengers. And so that's the bet that Boeing has made. And over the long term, one of the threads that runs through all of this is scarcity. And in this particular case, the scarcity of pilots. And so if you don't have enough pilots to grow with the airplanes that you're trying to deliver in parts around the world, Boeing is of the belief that any next new airplane that they have is going to have a significant autonomous capability or ideally have an autonomous capability, which is being proven out through their eVTOL business with WISC. And I think that is a bet that Boeing has been consistent on for the last several years, since at least 2017, 2018, when they first started talking about their autonomy strategy more publicly in terms of what they thought the requirements were going to be for a new airplane and the ability for the industry to grow over the long term. So the growth enablers are changing in terms of the supply side, which I think is really fascinating in its own right. But I think what we're going to really see is what cost, whether it's dollars and cents or regulatory relationships or the airline relationships, pilot relationships, all that are going to evolve to make that happen over time. So I think as we watch the next 10 years, these are going to be the pieces that are really worth watching. I mean, it's one thing to look at demand. It's one thing to look at geopolitics. 
those are going to be huge drivers in how the industry progresses. But certainly in terms of the cost to develop the next leap in fuel efficiency, and that's another phenomenally consistent trend in this business that every next leap gets even more expensive. So managing that and what levers you pull to reduce the cost of operation and deliver the value of the airplane at what is presumably going to be a higher cost than the previous generation are all baked into this. It is hands down the most fascinating industry in the world. I'm terribly biased in terms of my view of that opinion, but it's like a joke. There's always an aviation angle somewhere. It touches so many facets of our day-to-day life in terms of what goods are sitting, whether it's on our desks, in our offices, or in our refrigerators. How do you get fresh flowers from Africa and have them be delivered to Amsterdam or an iPhone that flew over from Shenzhen? It's so part of our everyday life in terms of the economics of how the world moves, how it communicates with itself culturally in terms of those interactions really is just so fundamental to how we've created this industry that we frankly take for granted every single day. People are far more likely to complain about air travel than they are to embrace the amazingness of it and what it has done for our lives. It's survivability and its ability to evolve given what is absolutely an existential reality of climate change and economics is going to be the story of the next 10 years. I know you largely focused on the commercial side of things, but cargo is obviously a big business here as well. And not only do people complain about their inability to get from point A to point B, but also getting things from our factories to our homes. So the impact on our lives is pervasive. I want to spend a little bit of time going through the P&L of the company. We spoke to the strength of the business in 2018. Peak revenue was well in excess of $100 billion. It's run rating closer to $60 billion today. So we're still almost 50% below peak. Is that just a function of producing planes quicker? What else is impacting the profitability of the business? The output for delivering airplanes is the big driver. And the more airplanes you deliver, you can amazing things happen when you go up and rate under the same factory. I mean, your overheads just get the benefit of spreading them across a greater number of units and unit costs just fall tremendously, especially when your workforce stays relatively stable. Volumes are the goal there. And certainly stability and reproducibility and again, getting in that flywheel effect where you have a drumbeat of a production line running 42 737s a month or more. 42 737s per month, just for context, there are 21 manufacturing days in a month. So that means that's two every single day. And when you can do that with a degree of consistency where you're not having to stop a line because of supply chain issues or you're missing engines or God forbid you have another safety crisis, that is just, it goes straight to the bottom line. And it creates a really virtuous flywheel within the organization where it has a stable drumbeat. And so, yes, those numbers, that $100 billion was 100% driven by a stable, growing, rapid tempo of aircraft production. And so if we kind of zoom out, my basic summary from a traditional business analysis perspective is that this is really a wonderful business. You have significant barriers to entry in a regulated industry. You have high switching costs. If any of their customers want to change fleet, they would incur significant costs and expenditures related to training their employees and maintenance. The customer base is relatively diversified, supplier base likewise. Perhaps there's some sole source nature of what they do, but many of which are not. What kind of challenges do they face? We know at the speed of production, safety considerations, but it seems like an incredibly entrenched industry and an established player within that industry. 
And is it really just that these existential questions that you spoke to kind of are what should keep those interested in Boeing up at night? The biggest challenges facing Boeing and Airbus are global. And yes, everything you just said is true in terms of the barriers to entry, the stability of it all. I think fundamentally, even as all these external forces are bearing down on Boeing and Airbus, and I think there's a recognition within both companies that how you maintain your own house is going to be the thing that allows you to weather these storms. That's cultural, that's strategic in terms of having a supply chain that works with you and not against you, to have be less adversarial and to have a customer base that sticks with you over the long term and to have those relationships. So I think the government relationships that come along with that as well all play into that. So the biggest threats to Boeing and Airbus are themselves making up series of compounding missteps that lead them away from their fundamental goal of number one, acting as strategic assets of the US and the EU, but also delivering airplanes and ultimately the outgrowth of all that when you do that well is shareholder returns. Our customary concluding question are lessons you can take away from this business from potentially an investment perspective, but also an operator's perspective and apply to other businesses outside of aerospace and defense. I'd be curious on your view there. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had a long-term editorial series in my head that I've written about at times between the similarities between the iPhone and Boeing airplanes. Boeing and Apple are very, very different companies structurally and strategy-wise, but they face a lot of the same challenges. So if you think about the iPhone 15, which we just had announced, and you think about the Boeing 777X, which is in development right now, you look at two products that have reached a point of maturity and the amount of evolution, that incremental evolution that now goes into them. And so, you know, everyone wants the next radical, oh, why isn't the iPhone 15 this radical change from the 15? Well, you see the life cycle of these two products that are really maturing in a really profound way. What changes? It's the camera, it's the engines, right? It's the processors, little avionics changes, but fundamentally the form factor remains the same. And so you watch these two products evolve over time and you think about how you transition to that next new form factor. We've got the Apple Vision Pro headset coming and how that is sort of the sum total of all the different technologies that they've honed over the last 15, 16 years since the iPhone was unveiled. And so you see them start this new product category. And I find it interesting that you have Boeing looking for that next product category, but it's really, really challenging. And this is where the divergence happens in terms of the maturity of each business. The barriers to entry are huge. The cost is huge. The market is uncertain, but they are tracking closer to each other than I think anyone realizes. The similarities and the differences are important in terms of understanding the evolution of both companies. And in many ways, the importance of growing demand from China and India being equally important. This has been a wonderful story. We appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 